welcome to the Park Road Podcast for March 13th, 2016. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, There Is No Future. ride of Paul Revere, his now famous horseback warning that the British are coming. There are those eerie rides of the headless horseman who gallop through Sleepy Hollow every night in search of the head that he lost in a revolutionary battle. But this story that I've just read to you of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus with her long sensual hair sent me to the internet for a reminder of the details of another famous nighttime ride. For the 11th, in the 11th century, the people of Coventry, England, were suffering under the powerful hand and the onerous taxation of Leofric, Earl of Mercia. His wife had begged his leniency numerous times on behalf of the poor, but Leofric would not consent until he devised a plan. Now his plan makes you realize that men in power have not just recently had trouble keeping their minds on governing their people. In this plan, Leofric agreed to reduce the heavy tax burden on his people if his Anglo-Saxon noblewoman would just agree to ride her horse through the town one night completely naked. Well, she consented. So the people of the town were instructed to close up their windows to give the good lady her privacy as she rode. And all agreed, you can be sure, except for Leofric. And one local tailor who bored a hole in the shutters of one of his windows so he could get a good peep. And peep he did, but it was his last, according to the legend, because when he looked on the woman passing by in the street, he was struck blind. And peeping Tom has been infamous ever since. Now what also is too often forgotten about this story is this beautiful woman's motivation. She rode the street on that steed, clad only in her long flowing hair, not to be provocative or tawdry, She had made herself completely vulnerable that night on behalf of the poor in her town. Her name, Gadaifu, means gift of God. It is an interesting, maybe a Freudian irony that her name as we have come to know it, Lady Godiva, connotes only our tantalizing preoccupation with sensuality or self-indulgent satisfaction. She, in her compassion, was Gadaifu, a gift of God. We have made her just a lure of seductive pleasure. In a similar way, I told you the sermon kind of meandered. In a similar way, with the story of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus, it has been too tempting over the centuries to think of her only 
to only think of the sensual nature of her act and perhaps to cast aspersions for her overt sexuality. Many who have speculated about her past also question her posture in the story I just read to you. Some have found it important to associate this Mary with the image of a prostitute, though it is not at all clear that is a fair identification. All four Gospels tell this story in some form. In Luke's story, she is an unnamed woman, though he says she had lived a sinful life. Apparently, Pope Gregory the Great once identified Mary Magdalene as, a, as being a repentant prostitute, and ever since, she, Mary Magdalene, and the unnamed woman of Luke's story, and Mary of Bethany, of the story I've just read to you. Those three have become a kind of composite Mary, inappropriately identified with a past life of ill repute. The Mary in John's story bathed Jesus' feet with a luxurious perfume and wiped them with her hair. You may be familiar with the Hebrew euphemism regarding quote-unquote feet. For example, when Naomi bids her daughter-in-law Ruth to go to the rich young Boaz to uncover his feet and to do what seems appropriate, you can be sure that he did not ask Ruth for a toe massage that night, though the Hebrew writer could not say it so explicitly. Now, there is no reputable suggestion of a similar association between feet and the genitals in the Greek language as there is in the Hebrew language. But Mary's act of bathing Jesus' feet with her hair would have drawn attention, to be sure. Women in this culture were not to touch a man publicly, and letting down her hair was not something to be done except for the eyes of her husband. In each gospel telling, this woman's act is a source of pious indignation. Matthew says the disciples took offense. Mark just says some who were present were indignant. Luke has one Pharisee commenting on her indiscreet action. And John claims the offended was none other than Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. I think we do have to wonder if the cause of their righteous anger was not rooted in some sexual arousal. Her attention to Jesus, while innocent enough, might certainly have suggested intimate innuendo in such a modest culture. It was their discomfort, though, whatever that says of them. It was their discomfort, not her action. Jesus made it clear her act was not at all inappropriate, yet their discomfort has stained her name for centuries. It has always been the case that when we, we who are in power, we who are the majority, we who represent the cultural norms, when we are uncomfortable with someone else's life or actions, someone who does not look or act as we think they should, we rush to name and blame. Our discomfort becomes their disrespect. And then we look for justifications to make our uneasiness credible. Too often we justify our discomfort 
wrapping it in religious confidence and self-righteous piety. Whatever his discomfort, Judas seizes the chance to use his religion and to play the poor as his pawns. The gospel writer dismisses Judas's concern for the poor, so it is ironic that Jesus' comment that follows has been so frequently abused for that very same purpose, that is, to dismiss the poor. Oh, you know, we don't really need to worry about the poor. You know, there's not really anything we can do about the poor. You know, Jesus said, the poor will always be with us. Poverty is just inevitable. They really can't be our concern. But Jesus says there is something we can do for the poor. And he points to this woman at his feet as our example. There's a young man named Jonathan. And he had an elaborate plan to propose to the girl of his dreams. Her name was Savannah. And Jonathan had planned to cover the house in which they lived with vases filled with roses, fresh roses of every color and shape and size on that big day. He had been shopping online and found interesting vases all over the place, and he had ordered beautifully differently shaped vases of every size and color. They were in the mail he had spoken with florists who knew where to get the freshest, most beautiful roses in all of Charleston. And when the vases arrived, he knew he, where he would go to get the perfect flowers to put in the vases for the perfect plan when Savannah came home. But then Jonathan picked up the ring from the jeweler, and when Savannah got home that night, he just couldn't wait. She walked in the door and he just burst out, will you marry me? He couldn't wait. I do wonder what happened the next week when all those vases started arriving in the mail. I can't find any commentary that gives any attention whatsoever to what has seized me for this text and what I'm trying to deal with in today's sermon. Not a single mention in any source that I checked. I don't know what that means about my mind and the way it works. But what I read is that Judas was offended that Mary wasted what could have been given to the poor. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. But not a single commentary source asked, so why did she not keep it for the day of his burial? She didn't keep it for the day of his burial. She wasted it today. Not on his funeral like she had planned. Should she have waited? I practiced this story about seven times before I came here. But you know what's coming. My friend, Dr. Bill Hull, was dying of Lou Gehrig's disease. His body was wasting away. He was already wheelchair-bound, and his speech was about to go. 
The only person that could understand Bill at this point in his life was his grandson who spent 24 hours a day giving him care. We did not know how long Bill had left. I was in touch with a friend in Birmingham, but I had been inspired by an example set for me by Ken Godwin, who's a member of this church. So before the time came, I drove to Birmingham when I knew I could still speak to Bill Hull. And I could still, I could still tell him thank you. I wanted to go when I could have one last conversation with my friend, Bill Hall. And I will never, ever regret the 12 hours I spent in the car driving to and from Birmingham, even though I got back in the car about two months later and drove down for his funeral. Should I have waited? What about you? Is there someone that you need to love? Someone that you need to forgive? Is there someone you need to defend? Is there someone you need to speak out for or stand up for? Is there something you need to do today? Let me promise you that none of those things will do them any good if you wait and save that sweet perfume for their funeral. I don't know what the right balance is between saving our money and spending it, between responsibly planning for our future and generously celebrating it today. But I do believe most affluent Americans, and we are all affluent Americans, have been cursed by the fears beset upon us by our financial planners. Ironically, as they encourage you to sock it away for tomorrow, they are enjoying it today. The food on their table and maybe the BMW in their driveway. Wouldn't our children rather have memories and experiences, the kind of time with their parents that makes a difference in creating character and instilling in them our values and a love of life, what is that worth? Wouldn't most children rather have that than just a little more money when mom and dad are dead and gone? What is the real inheritance we hope to leave them? We often talk about spending too much, about our consumer culture and our conspicuous consumption, and all that is true. But at the very same time, it is true that we do not spend enough on what matters. And there are some things worth being downright wasteful about. Lavish celebrations of the goodness of life matter. Mary did not wait. She could not wait. She did not want her lavish gift to come too late. She too was a gift of God. And her vulnerable act became not an anointing for burial, but a declaration of love. Her affirmation of who Jesus was and what he meant to her today. The religion of my childhood said faith is almost all about the future. You know, today is just a chance to get ready for tomorrow. 
But I believe Jesus tells us exactly the opposite. Do not worry about tomorrow. I came that you might have life today. Because when faith becomes love in practice, there is no future. Who needs you to be a gift of God today? May it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.